0: In Lystra and Derbu. in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. And the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowds saw what Paul has done, they shouted at the Laconian language. The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they call Zeus, and Paul, they call Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, Brought bulls and rams to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifice to them. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, "Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing the good news." telling you to turn from the, sorry, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from this worthless thing to living God, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go to their own way, yet he has not left him without The testimony he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season, he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples and gathered around him, he got up and walked back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in the city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Strengthening the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, you, Topo. Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you all. We're we're in Acts. Um, We're following... Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary um, journey, and we now meet them in Lystra. You can see on the map where they've been going, hopefully there's a map going to appear. Um, you can see where they've been uh, so far. Oh, not that one. Uh, I'm sure it will appear shortly. This is the, the first um, speech that we have. Uh, recorded where um, uh, Paul is speaking into a, a pluralistic culture. That means a culture with many different um, gods and, and faiths and, and philosophies going on. It's the, the first one, and uh, we have a kind of summary of it, not uh, the whole thing. Um, and of course, it was a, in, a, in so many ways a culture, not dissimilar to the one that we um, experience Now. And so the question I kind of want to pose for us um, tonight is, how do we present the good news of Jesus in a situation like this? Um, uh, we began to think about this um, last week with, uh, when Andrew um, spoke, and we're going to try and build on that and, and maybe go even a little bit more deeper into this. So it's a short presentation, it kind of gets uh, cut short, it's quite a reactionary presentation because he's dealing with a a big crowd, a big mob, and I want us to notice four things, four things that I think we can hopefully learn from as we think about um, our witness. And the first of these is um, that we need to love people, we need to love people who are in need seems like a very straightforward thing to say, but let me, um, before I delve in, let me remember to pray. Let's pray. We should always pray. God, our Father, do you thank you for your word? And we pray that we, we will learn um, how we can be better witnesses in, in this culture, in this day, we pray. Um, please speak to us and equip us by your spirit tonight, um, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've got your Bibles open. If you look at verse eight, um, we're to love people in need. It says in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed. And of course, Paul heals him. Now I want you to notice from this, this all happened as Paul was speaking. Don't lose sight of that. He, Paul was speaking. So what we have here, really, is a really good example of word and deed coming together, operating together. Jesus did it himself. He didn't just speak. He didn't just preach. He'd teach. He, he um, healed people. He did both together. Peter does the same. You can check it out in Acts chapter 3. An interesting one, you see in, um, in Acts chapter 8 with Philip in Samaria. There... Um, Luke um, records this. Luke tells us that when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miracles he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. It's almost as if as he spoke and as he did things, cared for the needs of the people in front of it, they even listened more closely. That's really important, isn't it, for us? Um, Really important. The apostles were devoted, yes, to the proclamation of god's word but they also wanted to take care of people's needs it mattered Uh, yes some of us might be more inclined in a in a word uh way and some of us might be more inclined in a an deed uh way but we need both and we we need to not let one trump the other when word and deed to comes together in our witness we have this extraordinary kind of credibility don't you it actually gives credibility to our message it's really really important Don't get so hung up on the the fact that they were performing miracles here. Remember, miracles come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, You know, simple acts of kindness are really, really important to people in need. Look for those opportunities around us um, when we're in our workplace or, or whether we're at home. It has a real impact on people. You know, the lonely person that nobody speaks to. Show, showing love to people in need. So that's the first one. Seems very obvious to say. Really important. The second one is a bit more to, to think through. Secondly, we need to try and spot people's idols. Now, what's this about, spotting people's idols? In response to this, this healing, they thought Paul and Barnabas uh, were gods. They thought they were gods. Verse 15 says, they shouted, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only humans like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. And notice, um, Paul, this is a very different presentation to what we had in Acts 13, if you were here. And you can go back and look at it at a later date. For example, Paul doesn't come in here and start quoting the Bible Now, of course, I'm sure he probably did get to that, and we should get to that, but he doesn't. So how do you show people that they have a need of of Christ if they don't believe the Bible, they don't believe the law of God, they don't believe in judgment, they don't have a sense of guilt within them, they don't have a sense of heaven and hell and need to stand before a single God? How are you going to, to, to show people? In Acts 13, Paul gives... Uh, what is um, uh, to his Jewish listeners he gives them all those things the law of God he talks about justification before a single God he quotes the Bible numerous times how are we going to do that? I think one of the things that this passage shows shows us instead of perhaps saying um, you know you're, you're a sinner in need of forgiveness perhaps what He's basically saying is actually you are slaves to idols and you need a new master. Do you see how it's it's saying the same thing, but in a different way, that will help hopefully connect with people. You see, good news is forgiveness of sins, but it's also rescue, it's also a freedom. It's from freedom from slavery and mastery to what to the text where it says these worthless idols these these worthless things sorry turn from those turn to the true master the living god from those worthless things that promise fulfillment but really leave you empty this was a pluralistic culture like ah there's no one god no supreme being instead you worshiped the thing that you felt would provide you with uh, a fulfillment of your needs that would help you out, as it were. So, you know, there was all sorts of things. If you were a farmer, you sacrificed to the god of agriculture, the god Demeter. If you were a soldier, you sacrificed to the god of war, who was Zeus. If you were um, a trader, somebody worked in merchant and trading, you sacrificed to the god of commerce, which was Hermes. If each, You had a god for everything, for for whether it was the uh, um, arts or whether it was um, love or music. Even Caesar was a god because he's providing something for you. He's going to give you something so you could sacrifice to even uh, a person. That's how it worked. There were the things you put your hope in, the things that bring you meaning in life. And Paul says you know, these are worthless things. That's quite a strong thing to say, isn't it? Quite a strong thing to say. And he says, now turn to the living God. So he's saying turn around. There's the repentance. But why, why do it? Where does he go next in his presentation? He says, because this God, verse 15 continue, made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Verse 17, he's not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season he provides with you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy you see that the true god has been giving you things already without you realizing even though you, you ignore god he is the master that we need the true god Don't you realise that he's been giving you these good things? So turn to him. He's been doing this since the world began because he's the creator of God, creator God. You see, everyone... If we step back, you see, when we look at our world, we we seem to see that everyone um, lives for something, an idol. Even if you say, I'm not religious... Everyone is sacrificing for something to bring meaning and purpose into life. And whatever that is, that is our our idol. Um, That is our master. And we need to sort of draw those out when we're we're witnessing to people. So, for example, it could be that relationships, um, that you're living for a a partner, living for the hope of a boyfriend or a, a girlfriend, that you've always longed for, and, of course, that thing, therefore, um, can control you. It can become your, your master in your life. You think to yourself, if only I had him or her, my life would be fulfilled. And so what you do is you sacrifice to that, don't you? You sacrifice all your time, your, your energy, your emailing, your Facebooking, your, all this goes into it. And, of course, you become a slave to it, to that end. You see, the truth is, for all of us, we... We, we don't control our own lives. We're not in. We're not our own masters. Um, something will be an idol, because it can be wealth, and money. Um, it can be success. It can be achievement. It can be power and and status. And they come out in different forms and in different ways. So you will do anything to get it, to go after it, and to keep it. We are all mastered in some way, okay? And Paul comes along and says, only the true God and the living God can liberate you from this master over you, um, can set you free from all those other worthless, empty things. Those things, actually, ultimately, um, all they do is they take and they take, they will eat you up, and eventually they can spit you out, because they don't work. They can't fulfill what they promise. But the living God, what does the living God do? The living God is just, just gives, and gives, and will fill you up. He won't spit you out. He will just keep on giving. He's already giving you creation, and crops, and all the things around you, you joys that you live for. And you see how we start to unpack what a true and living God is. You see, when we make worthless things our master, they're actually very unforgiving. Um, they're very unforgiving. See, if you make, I don't know, career... Um, the thing that you go after, um, but in your career you, you start to to make uh, mistakes. Um, it, things go a little bit wrong. What what happens to you? How does it eat you up? It eats you up because you you start to um, you you start to to beat yourself up, don't you? To start with, oh, I didn't, shouldn't have done that. And then you worry about your boss that. They're going to somehow kick you out. And so it masters you. Whereas you see, God, the living God, never going to kick you out when you come to him. Um, He's always ready to forgive you and to accept you. You see, the living God is the only master who comes down to give and not to take. And of course he came as a human, and gave himself up for us. So if we fail, he will forgive us. And of course, all other gods cannot do that. They're empty. They're worthless. They can't deliver on their promises. Now, in, a, in modern um, London, this is very much, I think, You know, we need to start to understand how this works out and plays out in people's lives. Because this is how people think. If you go in and you start with law, you talk about the Ten Commandments. um, I don't know, you you say, you need to be forgiven. You know how lousy you cheat. You um, sleep around. um, You need God for forgiveness. And of course, in a way, all those things are true. But... What are they going to turn around and say to you? Probably, and this is my experience, is that, well, everyone needs to work out what is right and wrong, don't they? Um, Don't impose your moral standard on mine. Um, It's all relative, isn't it, really? Um, And you just get kind of um, just into some sort of moral debate, really. And you never really get to talk about, about Jesus. Instead... I think it's something like this. Somebody says, you know, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need Jesus? You could say something like this, and you're going to have to flesh this out. I've been trying to work on this. Say, well, everyone's living for something. What are you living for? What's your hopes? What's your dreams and and longings? What do you hope for in your life? And then as you unpack it, you start to discover whatever there is they're going to actually master you. They will disappoint you. Even our best relationships, that person is going to die, isn't it, on you. Can't be sustained. But now a master is available if who you get and understand will satisfy you beyond your wildest dreams, beyond your wildest hopes, who will forgive you who will sustain you and set you free? This is a whole kind of different way, isn't it? Of in these practice. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do to spot idols, but I think it's something we need to to try and do. Um, thirdly, we need to persist when rejected. Verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city. And also in verse 22, it says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So to being a witness... Um, to the good news of Jesus Christ isn't always going to be easy. Maybe you've already experienced that. We may be welcomed. We may be rejected. People may not want to to talk to us or see us. Most of us, I cast, will never be stoned. I think that is true at the moment. Most of us in this country, it happens in other countries. But we may face opposition. And what are we to do? Are we to run away Are we to do what Paul does? He runs back into the city. They've just been stoned. It's amazing, isn't it? It might take us a little while to to get into that place, but we need to, to persist. After all, it was Paul who was Saul, who was stoning people, and yet he became a follower. And sometimes the most unlikely people are the people who reject us but then come to faith. Um, I think we need to to endure hardship. And I think that's what this passage is telling us. And, of course, the world finds um, hardship a really difficult thing to cope with. Um, our culture, I think, is terrible at quipping us to handle suffering and hardship. Um, the 21st century secular culture says, well, what does it say the meaning of life is for most people? Well, the meaning of life for most people is just to be happy, isn't it? That's their number one goal, to be happy. You get to decide what you want to be and what you want to have. Choose a life that makes you happy and go for it. This is a sort of happiness culture. Now, if that is the most meaningful thing in people's life, how... What happens when hardship comes along for most people? Well, when hardship comes along, it's, it's an aberration. It's, it doesn't seem to fit that worldview. They don't know how to handle it, what to do with it. It's an interruption. And suffering, therefore, cannot be in any way meaningful to people in those situations. You know, as, as Christians would understand, suffering can actually make us more humble, can't it? It can make us more gracious, it can, it can make us more uh, determined and patient and uh, understanding and all those things it has meaning um, to us but in, for most people it's a disruption it's not something, because it interrupts happiness and so we want and so what do we do if hardship strikes? most people want to run and hide they want to get out of it um, they have no framework to filter it through. Um, and so it's no wonder, is it, that we experience increasing society full of anxiety and stress and depression and suicide and all those things because people don't have any framework to handle that in a world that says happiness is the highest meaning of life. If you're a Christian, though, We have a different approach, don't we? Because we have a suffering servant who died for us. And so that means there is no pressure on us in the same way. I'm not saying it's easy, that life is easy. But you're not going to just pretend, you know, happy, happy, happy. No, you're saved by grace. Jesus Christ suffered and died for you. And when he suffers, he calls us to suffer like him, to be like him, and to follow in his ways. So it gives us an ability to persist. Now, why am I saying this is part of our witness is because the world will look at that and go, ah, that's just strange to them. Because it doesn't mean to say you don't cry and you don't weep and you don't shout and you don't scream and have all those kind of pains... But you have a framework to understand your suffering in it because you have a suffering God who died on a cross. And so it, it fortifies you. It, makes you. it gives you a new ability to move out into a world to say, I know a God who goes way beyond this world. He's the living God. Um, can I share that with you? Can I share this suffering servant who died for us? It will turn you from someone um it will turn us into somebody who gets up and goes back into the city that's what i believe and i'm not saying that is an easy thing to happen when we're going through hardship but i do think that is something that we need to learn as we witness finally nearly there the fourth thing um satisfy people's longings. Now, why do I say this? Satisfy people's longings. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Now, clearly that's not the right response, is it? It's not the right response. Paul and Barnabas are horrified. They tear their garments. They've got the wrong end of the stick. But before we say, ha ha ha, those silly old Lyconians, aren't they silly? Let's just think for a moment. There is a God who came down. (laughs) Okay? There is a God who came down. There's a God who came down in human form. Yes, they've got the wrong end of the stick. But the reason they did what they did now, what is the reason they did what they did? Uh, and worshipped Paul and Barnabas. What was it? Well, the reason was because they had, in their culture and their history, stories and legends and fairy tales about gods who came down. You see, all cultures have been filled with stories and legends of the, the supernatural, the supernatural heroes, of being from out there who come in and down, out of space to fight evil with good. And the question we have to ask ourselves and the question we can use as we witness is, why do we have those stories? You know, use those stories as we witness. You see, people say, people say, there is no supernatural, no miraculous beings, no supernatural heroes to save us Yet, yeah, of course, we have a culture that is absolutely filled with loads and loads of supernatural beings that we um, go and watch every um, week or month or however you get, how often you get out to the cinema or to watch the TV. Think about it. You've got Doctor Who. You've got um, things like the Marvel Comics uh, heroes. You, you've got um, aliens. And you've got Narnia and... And you've got Avatar and Star Wars and all those um, fantasy and adventure um, movies. Fantasy sci-fi adventures, one of the biggest selling genres in Hollywood. Why? Why? That's the question we've got to ask. Is because it's feeding upon a deep need within all of us, a longing that there is something beyond this world. And of course, we know as Christians we know that to be true. We all have longing, itches that realism cannot answer. You know why things like EastEnders always disappoint us eventually, don't they? And not that there's nothing wrong with realism uh, movies; they're good too. But. Yeah. But humans want to, we want to escape time and space. We we do want to be immortal. That's why we like these things. We want to live forever. We want a love that never dies. We want um, these things because it's actually, the truth is, it's hardwired into our very being. We are fascinated with any stories beyond this world of communicating with aliens, with non-human beings. I mean, why are there so many people who have gone up to Stonehenge two days ago is a, a case in point. Stories that tell us of a love that will not die, of stories where there will be that complete triumph over evil with good. But intellectually, people have been told the story that there is no supernatural, that there is no thing, nothing beyond this world. But of course that, that aching and that longing within people is always there. And the reason it's there, you can see it's there because the Odeon, the cinemas, the television tell us that it is there. You see, these deep longings are kind of like what people call um, memory traces. Memory traces of how things were meant to be. Memory traces of a greater story, a story of ultimate reality that we're all longing for. And Genesis 1 2, um, as most of you are familiar with, the beginning of the Bible tells us what? It tells us that we were talking with non humans. We were walking with God, speaking with aliens, and who knows what other beings we were talking um, with. It tells us that the was a love with god that was meant to be without end it tells us that there wasn't death for humanity that there was no evil to triumph over all these stories push us to those ultimate realities and we can't just switch it off people can't in our world just switch it off we can't stop sensing it we can't stop being fascinated by that longing in us so these legends, these stories, these tales, whatever they, however they come, they're memory chase, traces. And of course, yes, they're distorted, and they, they only catch a glimpse of what the, reality, the true reality is in God, in the living God, in the true God. But they are there, and those are the stories and the, the tales that we should, we should be using to talk about our faith into. In Lystra... They thought gods had come down. They were excited, weren't they? Maybe this was the moment that the legends came true, they were thinking. That they had uh, that they would have their longings satisfied. So they came out and they sacrificed to Paul and to Barnabas. Maybe maybe we will be satisfied. I don't know whether you've ever come out of an Odeon or a cinema. That's how you feel, isn't it, Sometimes. And that's what we need to tap into when we're witnessing, that longing. Christians, we need to learn these stories and understand them. We need to tell the stories and therefore tell the greatest story of all, which is the story of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Listen, Jesus Christ is the God who came down in human form. Um, He's not just some deity, but he's the living God himself. He came and he broke the barriers between us and God. He is the ultimate reality. He broke through into a world from another world. Um, He is the superhero that we long for. If we believe in him, if we trust in him, Lyconians, uh, Blackheathians, Londonians—I don't know what how you call them. whatever you call Charltonians. (laughs) Um, When you speak to them, say to people, we talk to (laughs) non-humans. Say that to them. Um, We will have, I have, I have a love that will not die, a love that will never end. Uh, I have escaped death and will escape death. And good will triumph over evil. You see, Christ fulfills the deepest longings, the dreams, the hopes of all people. So let's, I I don't know how you're going to put these into actions. I haven't actually given you a lot to, to say, how are you going to do it? But I believe these are some of the ways that Acts 14 can help us as we love people in need, as we spot people's idols, as we persist when rejected, and we satisfy people's longings. Shall we pray? Our God, our Father, we thank you for your, your word, and we thank you for the way uh, Paul spoke. Paul and Barnabas spoke into a different um, culture and um, in many ways, not dissimilar to to ours, in in a pluralistic culture, Father, we we pray that we'd learn from that um, de- that witness how we can love those in need as we speak, um, how we can spot those things that master us um, in the world, those idols. How we can um, how can we can be persistent even when somebody's rejected? Show us how we can. Um, Show people's um, longings and how they are only satisfied in Jesus Christ, the greatest story of all. Show us how we can do this, Father, that we may be better witnesses. Um, For your sake we pray. Amen.